This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The subject we're talking about really is specific. It's the uh, question of the death of the firstborn and God's use of plagues as depicted, as God is depicted in Exodus in the plague cycle uh, in the early chapters. Uh, God's use of plagues and punishments with regards to uh, the, the Egyptians and the, uh, the government that holds the, the Hebrew slaves captive as a way of chastising, rebuking, and educating them. But the more general question is also about the morality of God in the Old Testament and ways that one can question or wonder about the deeper dimensions of theological morality of God or whether God is depicted justly in the Old Testament. And there are other passages one could choose, I think arguably harder passages one could choose to challenge, as it were, the justice of God in the Old Testament. Um, but I won't uh, belabor the point. The point. I'm just identifying the topic. Now, it's a huge topic, and historically there's been a lot of reflection on it in the oldest Christian theology. Just to take some very important examples, in the 4th and 5th century A.D., uh, the Manichaean heresy, which taught that this physical world is evil, claimed that, and the body is evil, principle of suffering, and the spirit is good, the body is evil, claimed that the Old Testament and the way that God was depicted in the Old Testament is filled with immorality. And Augustine, who had been a Saint Augustine before his conversion, had been a Manichae, and after his conversion, wrote a famous treatise against Faustus the Manichae which lays down a number of principles for reading the Old Testament and engages with controversies around the question whether God is depicted as a moral agent in the Old Testament. You have a whole bunch of questions about this in the high Middle Ages, from great Jewish commentators like Maimonides in the 12th century to, August, uh, to Aquinas. Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae is a great work, the Summa. In the first part of the second part, which is called the Prima Secundae, uh, treats the Old Testament in great detail in what are called questions 98 to 106. And you have a huge amount of commentary there, including questions of uh, some of the questions of God's punishments and so forth. And then you have in the Enlightenment era, many Enlightenment thinkers who challenged whether the Old Testament could really be a revealed text if, in fact, God commanded things that are prohibited things that seems to be more immoral, it commands what's immoral, you know, prohibits what's moral, that kind of thing. Now, you have that kind of literature still out there in New Atheism and, uh, and other zones, but the point is to realize, first, there's a lot of reflection in history. These are not new ideas. That doesn't mean that there aren't hard questions, but it is to say that it is good to read the classical authors, too, because often people like Augustine help you find answers to ways to think deeply about what the Old Testament means. Now, what I want to do here is just talk about some of the broader reasons for interpreting the Old Testament in a Christian way theologically with Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to go to Aquinas's views, which I use in this commentary on Exodus. So there's a lot more of this, what I'm giving you in this book. I'm going to use Aquinas as a guide, and I'm going to talk about some general principles and then zone in more and more specifically till we get to the actual question of the death of the firstborn. And I have basically here uh, about six major points, and the sixth one will get more detailed. So if it seems like I'm not dealing with the issue of that particular passage, just hold on.
So I want to first talk about this, the deeper purpose of law for Aquinas, because sometimes as soon as you say law, people think about a constraint on freedom. And there are, you know, moral thinkers who think of law primarily as a constraint on bad liberty, bad freedom, but that's not how Aquinas thinks. Aquinas thinks about law as an external pedagogue or indicator of a way of life that is virtuous. So the best aspects of law, yes, law can be indicate prohibited acts or imprudent activity, like don't stand on the edge of the concrete barrier of the um, bridge over the river uh, on a Friday night after you've had uh, two beers, because if you fall over, you will die, right? That's prohibiting imprudent behavior. So there's a place in like that in law, and some of it's about hurting yourself, some of it's hurting other people. But actually law mostly is meant for Thomas Aquinas to indicate the way towards virtues with say stable dispositions to good activity that will lead to happiness. So think about a syllabus in a course. I mean, does your professor of philosophy hate you? Well, he might personally hate you. We don't know. That's an interesting philosophical question, but or a personal question. But the truth is the assignments on the on the syllabus are meant to indicate laws, obligations, legally obligations that you need to do to fulfill a course to build up in you the habit of deep philosophical reflection. So law is actually about acquiring liberty. You could think about it like learning to play the piano, learning to play jazz, learning to play something on the guitar. If you have a discipline, it's to, it's to acquire a deeper spontaneous freedom to do a certain kind of action well and rightly, like be a just person, be a temperate person, be a courageous person, be a musical person or an artistic person, etc. Right, or a speculatively reflective person. So the first thing is law is an external guide to internal virtue. That's just really important to get generally because otherwise you think about biblical law as a constraint on human liberty, motivated by uh, perhaps God to uh, thwart your wicked freedom from having all of its spontaneous uh, effect. Actually, no, the law, according to Aquinas, is a pedagogue that God gives in with regards to biblical law to teach us to live in a deeper um, flourishing in human happiness. Now, here's some particularities. He thinks that the Bible not only gives us natural laws or laws pertaining to the good of our human nature, like it's good to propose marital fidelity and avoid adultery and live temperately and chastely, but also uh, supernatural laws or laws that are meant that are revealed by God to teach us something we cannot know by our own natural power, such as that God has initiated a covenant with humanity out of love, justice, and mercy, so that we can enjoy intimate friendship with God by knowledge, a higher, more perfect knowledge of God than our nature can afford. So for example, if God has truly revealed his mysterious identity to Israel, it's so that we, Israel, and then we, the human race, can know who God really is and live in some kind of spiritual friendship with God by faith and hope. And, and charity. So you might say this way, in Aquinas's view, and I think he's just basing himself on scripture here, law is a dimension of covenant in its highest instances ordered to grace and communion. So again, it's not like law just to teach you to be a good philosopher or a guitarist or whatnot. It's also law so that you can live in friendship with God according to God's measure of grace, that the fact that God wants to initiate friendship with humanity and he gives certain laws in view of that. So then he thinks that um, laws are enshrined in the Old Testament in prophecies or the teaching of inspired writers who God uh, drew up 
in their own historical condition and who he inspired in their own historical condition. So they wrote as human authors of their age, which is a very different age than ours, an archaic age, you could say, near Middle Eastern archaic age, with its own moral landscape, political landscape, and kind of cultural conditions. But in that particular moral landscape, political landscape, cultural landscape, God gave them uh, teachings regarding uh, friendship with God, the human condition, and the conditions of covenantal law that could eventually, at least in, in some ways, be applicable to all people in all times. We'll come back to this. To what extent is that law in the Old Testament relative? To what extent is it absolute? Now, the second, uh, that's my first point. You know, law is an exterior principle of instruction aimed towards an interior life of virtue, culminating in human happiness through friendship with God, enshrined in a covenant that God gave the human race so we could truly know him. That's a principle of Christian reading of the Old Testament. Second point, there's a deeper background to the law in Exodus. So if you know the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy contain laws. The first book is Genesis, before the beginning of the law. So when we talk about the Torah or the law, actually we're talking about Genesis plus those four books of laws. There's a lot more than laws in those books, but there are a lot of laws in the first four books. And those in those four, last four books of the first five books. But what's the context? The context is, I would say, you know, Genesis and the New Testament. The Genesis context is that we, the deeper background of the law is that we are first made, this is the first pages of Genesis, we are made as human beings in the image and likeness of God. So we are not simply highly developed animals, even if we may have an evolutionary origin which is not known about in the Bible or talked about, but it does say we're drawn up from the dust of the earth and that we are animals or, uh, you know, as other animals in some respects. But, the, but it also talks about God breathing into us a divine principle, which the tradition takes to be the spiritual soul. And in virtue of this body-soul composition, we are in the image of God. We're a spiritual animal, a higher creature, a personal, uh, with a personal nature. We are persons. And Genesis teaches that we were created in friendship with God, back to the idea of grace and friendship with God as an original purpose of creation, but that we uh, defected in our primal ancestry, the human race defected from a covenant of friendship with God and now finds itself in a position of ignorance regarding God, woundedness regarding our will, and um, weakness of freedom with regards to our moral life and our virtues in the body so we are often enslaved to pleasures to a great extent we have laziness or difficulty in doing the arduous or difficult good we are characterized by egoism or selfishness uh, and hostility sometimes to god and deep ignorance of how we ought to live with regards to many elements but also as to who god is or what the absolute nature reality the ultimate nature reality is so these are effects of original sin. And they're remedied according to New Testament teaching. This is like Paul in chapter 5 and 6, uh, 7 and 8 of Romans, Paul's letter to Romans. They're remedied by Christ's universal atonement, Christ's own sinless human life of grace, in which he has offered his human life to God uh, to accept the injustices of public torture, ridicule, and crucifixion in order to atone for human sin as a human being without sin and full of grace, who is also the Lord or God made human, who has the, as it were, infinite dignity of a subject who's both God and man. 
That's the principle of the atonement. I know I'm going fast, it's a lot of stuff. But the point is, the deeper context of the law is that we are all made in the image of God for friendship with God. We are <clears throat> fallen in some ways, weak or wounded, and we can be redeemed by grace in Christ. The reason that matters is that the law has a pedagogical function in between the two. On the one hand, vis-a-vis -vis the fallen person in us, the law points out to us our own failings. So if it says that thou shalt not lie in the Decalogue in Exodus, if we're a little bit honest with ourselves, if we're not lying to ourselves, we know that we are sometimes exaggerating, stretching the truth, saying things about others that are not perfectly accurate, um, misusing the truth in the wrong context and so forth. We could create an examination of conscience about that. And we'd see, well, you know, I'm not perfect on that truth-telling aspect, to always tell the truth and to tell the truth in loving ways. And so the, the law, that's just an example, but the law in the Old Testament is meant to be a kind of pedagogue to show us our fragilities as both individually and collectively as human beings. And then at the same time, under the grace of Christ or in the grace of Christ, the laws can have a rehabilitative function, meaning I can now go back empowered by the grace of Christ as a person who's baptized, who goes to confession, who prays to Christ, who asks for grace and ask for the strength to be a truth teller, to become a person of the truth, but to tell the truth in love, to know when to tell the truth and when to just be silent, but never to lie and so forth, right? So I can start to build up a virtue of truth that's stronger, strengthened by the grace of Christ. So that's another context. Um, okay, here's the third thing I want to say. I'm going to the third principle now. Uh, I want to talk about, just make a distinction that Aquinas makes between the natural law encoded in the Old Testament and juridical civic legislation. The distinction he makes, and some Jewish commentators, by the way, just don't accept this distinction, but it, almost all medieval and even ancient Christian commentators strongly distinguish uh, between the law, the laws in the old, some laws in the Old Testament that teach us truths pertaining to all human nature, such as that we should worship God for our human, human flourishing and happiness, that it's realistic to uh, uh, acknowledge God in our own personal lives and in our way of thinking and acting and, and praying, or that we should not murder the innocent, that uh, that's always wrong, or that we ought not to steal property that we have no right to and so forth. Those are natural laws in some way accessible to natural reason and applicable in all times and all places with all kinds of specificities. It's all kinds of detailed uh, applications. And then there's juridical punishments like if your ox gets out of its gate and kills another man, you have an obligation to slaughter that ox and perhaps make a, a payment to the family of some of the, the meat, right? That's not something you think about with regards to, you know, what you owe another person typically in America. That's a juridical precept that is particular to ancient Israel. Now, like many medievals, Aquinas thinks that that's somewhat relative because it makes, it's certainly a reasonable law, but it, even at the time it could have been different. If it's a mosaic precept, the mosaic Moses or his scribes whoever in the, in the end edited thought it was a reasonable way to think about a moral application, but we could have done it differently then in principle and we can do it differently now. 
it is edifying that they followed it in order to be part of, you might say, God's tribe. It, it has a role to keep people within the boundaries of Israel as an elect people. But there's also a certain relativity to it. Okay, so there, there's a point, and, and also Aquinas thinks some of those precepts are time-bound, meaning, well, if the people were, like, so eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is said, you know, Jesus sort of says that's not charitable enough. But he doesn't say it's wrong. But the context was that sometimes in the ancient world, at the time of Israel, and this has been demonstrated by biblical scholars, if, a, if one man put out another man's eye, the, the man whose eye was put out could assassinate or kill the other man. So a disproportionate reaction. Or if someone took out your, knocked your tooth out in a fight, you could kill them. And what the Bible is saying is, no, that's, that's disproportionate punishment. So the punishment has to be proportionate. Now, Christ talks about a deeper kind of mercy, even beyond that, of course. But the point is, even though this is in a relatively, in, you know, it's a kind of cultural maxim, it has a certain relativity, but even in that relative context, it's a rather merciful law. It's a rather, actually, it's a rather just law, as opposed to merciful. It's kind of getting the measure right about proportionate punishment. So my point is, there is some historical relativism in, the, in what you do with the Old Testament laws, and there's some historical absolutism. How would we ever know which is which? Well, the long, the, the long and short, the short Catholic answer is the Catholic magisterium, the magisterium of the Catholic Church. But this is one reason moral theology is rather interesting, because you get into all kinds of peculiar cases historically, and actually it's one reason we need moral ex experts in moral reasoning. The fourth point is something that's less, so what I've been saying right now is trying to kind of make sense of the Old Testament as a theological text that's helpful for us. The fourth point's a little more countercultural, but still very important. It's that in the Old Testament, as Aquinas understands it, I think in general, as the Christian understands it, the Christians understand it, the most primary thing that law has to do with is our relationship with God. Now, this is not at all how we think today. In fact, a lot of people in our world today would say this is a scary idea, because if you start putting the legal relationship with God at the center of everything, you're going to end up, based on religious grounds, treating people badly. And we can talk about wars of religion and religious intolerance of persons. And there's a long history to that because of the Enlightenment, because of the wars of religion today, because of religious terrorism and so forth. But um, there's also a long history of people being pretty religiously tolerant in modern Christian Europe and even medieval Christian Europe because they believed in God. And they thought that you had to respect the other person who's made in the image of God, even when you think they're in error or they disagree with you. So there's a lot. Robert Wilkins has a, is a, a great Christian history scholar, has a recent book on the Christian origins of the doctrine of religious tolerance. But, um, but my point here is like, so if you take a, a work like Immanuel Kant's Religion Within the Boundaries of Reason Alone, it's, it's a, one of the great I would say anti-Christian works of modern enlightenment, enlightenment reflection. But he doesn't just attack Christianity like someone like Nietzsche, Kant tries to reinterpret it in what he calls a purely rational way. And he says, for example, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, only the last seven commandments really have any moral worth for us today because they concern relations with our neighbor. The first three uh, commandments don't concern our ethical behavior because they only concern our relationship with God. <laughs> but in ancient Israel and in classic Christian traditional thinking, 
our relationship with God is not just private, but also public. Religion is not just a, uh, as it were, private affair or an individual one, but a public one. It involves public behavior. And the relationship a society has to God is of importance. And so what you're looking at often in the Old Testament is an evaluation of the way peoples collectively relate to God or do not relate to him. And you have basically the diagnostic of what we could call uh, religious error. That's a nice way of putting it. The diagnostic of religious error. Another way of putting it was, is you have the prophetic denunciation of idolatry. Now, when Aquinas talks about what idolatry is, he says it's worshiping the wrong thing. Superstition is worshiping the right thing in the wrong way. Or or worshiping the the right thing, mixing with it I, wrong ideas about it. So, I mean, worshiping God by human sacrifice or suicide bombing or through the killing of, you know, innocent strangers, these are superstitious or wrong-headed acts of religion. But worshiping the wrong gods or not worshiping God at all is potentially idolatrous or erroneous. And it, when Aquinas looks at what vice is involved, he says it's injustice because we're not really figuring out how to return our human nature back to its source. Now, there's injustice there to ourselves because we're not really finding our true happiness. You know, what do you live for? Well, I'm going to be a stockbroker. I'm going to make millions of dollars. And once I've made millions of dollars as a stockbroker, uh, I'm going to spend it on my yacht. And then after I have a yacht, I'm going to, you know, et cetera. Okay, that's not idolatry, but it's, it's not a, mm, it's not, it's a truncated sense of ultimate purpose. Now, you can be a stockbroker and you can be a millionaire and you can worship God and plenty of people do do that. But then you have kind of, you know, things follow from that and what, what you do with your resources. And many people understand that. I'm not trying to castigate a particular class. My point is that it's easy for us to think about a horizon in which the ultimate ends are not God. But you also have, even today, and certainly in the ancient world, people who think about the ultimate horizons and what they've got going as the story of why we all exist is not God, but something else quasi-religious. The gods, various mythologies, okay, cause a kind of idea of the cosmos as divine, or in the case of the Pharaoh, the emperor is an avatar of the divinity. So the emperor embodies divinity, and the political structure of ancient Egypt is quasi-divine and gives the emperor power over human life and human death. So the emperor, as this embodiment of a divine figure, can also come and say who gets to live and who gets to die and can assign death to innocent people or their children if he needs to purge the population. So. Part of what's going on is in the Old Testament, this is a rather intense um, critique of human religion or the lack thereof, whether it's too little religion or, or the wrong-headed religion, and, and that is at work. Uh, my fifth point is that in God's punishments in the Old Testament, we want to often say instinctively, we just see God acting justly, or maybe we see God acting uh, by, um, let's call it a uh, psychological belligerence, you know, God, the abusive father, God, the over, uh, over agitated vengeance warrior. Okay. Um, you, it is, it is, there are complicated issues about how you read the whole old Testament. Okay. And different passages, are they more metaphorical when it says God's anger burned? Okay. 
anger typically is a, you have to be angry you have to have an animal body anger is a passion of the body so almost everybody in ancient and modern ancient medieval and modern judaism and christianity understand that to be a metaphorical expression that makes god depicts god anthropomorphically but you have i mean so you have to think that some of the anthropomorphisms are also about deeper attributes of god like god's transcendent justice god's transcendent mercy all the punishments of God are both expressions of transcendent justice and transcendent mercy. But what are those? Transcendent justice, Aquinas thinks, is basically God uh, reasserting the order of the universe in accordance with truth, even when we fail to acknowledge the truth and act against it. So, for example, if I am a political leader who believes I'm an avatar of the divinity and I take human life unjustly, I'd say some particular under, you know, oppressed class of people who are slaves, we're going to just depopulate them by killing the firstborn. Um, that is against the order of justice because I fail to recognize their human dignity. I fail to recognize who they truly are as human beings made in the image of God. And if God were to enlighten me through a set of punishments or confront me with the truth of my behavior, that would not be only to show other people the order of justice. It would also be show me, and there are plenty of passages like this with regards to the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to show me that I need to step back from what I think are my privileges and recalibrate and see the structure of reality as it is, which is that I don't have the right to politically do something like that. But there's also always transcendent mercy. And the reason is, uh, as Aquinas points out, God only ever acts in justice in view, uh, in this world, in view of the rehabilitation of the person. So in other words, he, when God acts with transcendent justice, he does so to bring home a truth oriented toward our rehabilitation or to turn us around back to the possibility of reconciliation with God. And that's a mercy on God's part. Now, Here's an important idea. God, especially in both the Old and New Testament, but especially in the Old Testament, some of God's actions are more indicative of punishment in view of revealing transcendent justice or truth about the state of the world, who we are before God, our sinfulness, our weakness, our patheticness. Other acts are transcendent revelations of God's mercy. Exodus itself is full of both. It's full of both. It's very important with the golden calf segment where God first reveals his transcendent justice, but then reinstates the covenant and reveals his deepest name as mercy. Right? So the dynamic of moving from just, through justice into mercy without opposing the two is a very important dynamic in the Bible and in Exodus itself. So you have to see that the Old Testament does reveal God as essentially and ultimately a God of mercy and love but through the background of revealing to us our own injustices so that we can come to terms with who we are before God and receive his mercy. And he does do that in a context with a people who are different than us morally, some of whom are more coarse than us and less educated, some of whom might be, they may be more sensitive to some things that we're less sensitive to, probably more religious people than most Americans today, but probably also a, people who are much more, uh, course about taking human life. So then I just want to finish by talking about um, the application to this with regards to the death of the firstborn. 
I think the death of the firstborn, you have to take, first of all, a couple of aspects of context. First, in Genesis, we see that God created the man and the woman in view of friendship with God that could lead to the grace of eternal life or immortal life. Now, that, there's a lot of ink spilt about this issue, and Aquinas thinks Adam and Eve and the first human community are naturally mortal. That's to say, by their own natural power, they can die like other animals. But that they were given a, a grace in seed that could elevate them, that as was elevating them to some kind of grace of immortal life or life of God. So it's not that they're not animals like everybody else, but they are spiritual animals with spiritual souls, unlike other animals. But they're given an initial, you might say, covenantal grace of life with God. When they forfeit that, God withdraws the symbol of the withdrawing of the fruit of life, of the tree of life. The symbol Augustine and others like Aquinas take to be an image, it's a representation image of a spiritual withdrawal of grace that would preserve them from death. So they are returned to the, you might say, returned to their natural capacities, and we cannot naturally protect ourselves eventually from dying. So mortality is a teacher in the Old Testament. Augustine says in the City of God that God withdrew the grace of eternal life after the original sin or the sin of our first parents so that as a mercy, he says it's as a mercy, so that they wouldn't live in this world forever separated from God. And that by being subject to mortality, they would realize that their souls could live for something beyond this world, beyond their own grasping autonomy in view of their life with God. And it's just a general truth, as Augustine notes, that when we are confronted with death and mortality, we do often turn to God because we're pointed towards our absolute condition and situation. So he says, in a pithy way, God made us subject to the first death so that we would not be subject to the second death. And so that in the face of our mortal death, of, mort of physical mortality, we would confront our need to be reconciled with God in our soul and avoid eternal separation from God. So you've got that background that death is a, you know, it's not something we can inflict on another person. We have no power over that. That's wrong. We are human dignity means other people are not subject to us. But God does make use of mortality. He didn't create human beings for death. He created them for life. But he makes use of mortality to teach us. In that context, then, you have Pharaoh, as I've already explicated, suggesting that in a way he has dominion over life and death as a, you might say, dictator or you might say religious icon, as an avatar of the divinity, as an embodiment of the gods of Egypt's authority in his political person. And of course, here the state, the Egyptian state, is reified or deified as a kind of expression of the divine order. This is not a contemporary modern view, but this is a very uh, widespread classical view in many ways that the political state is a kind of embodiment of the order of the gods. And you can see the radicality of Exodus cutting through all that and saying, no, the real order comes from a gift above when God creates a covenant with the human being in law, universally, act, act, universally um, applicable to all to which we are held accountable in the eyes of God. And so it's very radical. It's changed our world. We don't realize how much it's cleared out the poetico-theological superstitions of ancient cultures and made way for the culture of human autonomy we now live in, albeit a more secularized version of it. Now, in this context, the death of the firstborn is a punishment that God enacts, paradox, a paradoxical punishment 
where God punishes a community uh, along the same lines that mirror, as it were, their own action. So they have been taking human life, usurping the role of God, and God comes in as the transcendent source of life, the transcendent authority, who alone, the transcendent one who alone has the true authority as creator to give or take life, and God takes the life of their firstborn so that they re realize, you might say, in restorative justice, uh, there's retributive justice involved, but the, the, the deeper, I think, the deeper backbone of it, the deeper dimension of it is a restorative justice that's meant to make them see, hey, what's the deeper order here? Who is really the author of life? Who is the sovereign uh, giver of life and taker of life? Who has created being and given you being? Not the Pharaoh, not the gods of Egypt, but the, the true and living God. And all the plague cycle is also about uh, dis disillusioning them with regards to the gods of Egypt. So if the Nile is a god, the God of Israel causes it to overflow because they believe things like that. You know, if frogs, the gods are worshipped under the image of a frog, then the frogs come and, you know, fill the houses of the Egyptians. So they see the God of Israel is in charge of the frogs. They're creatures. They're not to be seen as symbols of deity. And their pagan gods are being mocked. But why is that happening? To restore to them a sense of openness to the truth, that God is, only God is God, that the transcendent God alone can save us, and there is a kind of severe mercy involved of, of rendering them capable of, of seeing the truth of their situation. The Old Testament doesn't, in typically, not in every case, but typically the Old Testament doesn't tell us about the afterlife fate of those who die. It doesn't speculate usually about when the Philistines lose people in battle. Was he a good person? Was he a bad person? Was God secretly at work in his heart? Was he not? It, it, what is life after death? How does that, that's more a theory of, I mean, a, a kind of development of New Testament theology. Those it, it, later Old Testament writers do write more about life after death, but the Old Testament doesn't, as it were, often bring you into that issue per se. So you're not obliged to take a point of view from the text itself about what happens to the death of the first, the, the souls of the firstborn after they die. You may very well take a Christian view that in and through their, you know, um, union with the work of God in the covenant, God could in fact save their souls. That may be. It's a free, it's a, it's a, you know, open question. Or you can be agnostic. Uh, or you can be pessimistic. You have the right to be pessimistic. It's another perspe perspective. Theologians debate that. But what you can, I think, I think what it, we should commit to is the idea that the Old Testament is meant to teach us uh, our own moral fragility in the face of eternal justice so that we will embrace eternal mercy. And the last thing I just say is when you think about Old Testament punishments, they are specific and limited, and they're meant to enlighten us all universally toward a greater truth, which is the eternal mercy of God revealed in Christ. So there are, God, you might say, God does make examples of people. And as I've said, we don't know what happens in this in the eternal life, but he does make examples of people in time as salutary warnings, but he doesn't do it often in the Old Testament or normatively. It's abnormal, abnormal, so that we start to get the message that we're called to a deeper life of mercy. But it's not unjust for him to do it. And I would even go as far as to say this, you really don't understand the Old Testament fully until you begin to identify with the Egyptians. I mean, I know we're supposed to identify with the Israelites, but on another level, we should be thinking, how much am I like the Pharaoh? 
running my own life separated from God. You know, so in other words, it's not really fully understood as a text. And I think this is for the ancient Israelites. The ancient editors of the Torah want the Israelites to think about their privilege of being lit in the lineage of the delivered slaves who were saved by grace, by God's mercy. But they also want to think about how not to be like the Egyptians or how are we like the Egyptians and we need to convert. So you have a lot of law later in the Torah about how Middle Eastern ancient archaic Hebrews need to treat their slaves. And, you know, so it's not accidental. They must be treated differently than we were treated by the Egyptians. Now, you could say, well, what's going on with slavery still existing? What was slavery? And that's another question of juridical law. But it was a norm in the economy. One of the reasons it starts to change is because of the Old Testament, later the New Testament, relativizing the role of slavery by claiming the human dignity of every person. And that's where Exodus's idea of the punishment of, of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the death of the firstborn opens you actually up to a universal horizon that all human beings are created equally in the image of God. And therefore, slavery is, in fact, a, a whole way of life in the ancient economy that has to be abolished. And in fact, over time, that has objectively happened slowly. So I'm going to just leave it there. I have talked 40 minutes. That's actually, for me, rather disciplined. I see there's a lot of people online. Um, I'm going to see if I can figure out if there's how to get to comments. Uh, I'm going to open the, the door, to, you know, the floor for questions. People can, I, I'll let, I'll let Benjamin uh, lead us through it. But of course, you know, you can write it. You can come online. You can um, also talk to me in the room there. Um, so when you're talking about like the laws that we need to follow to like achieve happiness and like a better relationship with God, you mentioned how our relationship with God is not a personal thing. It's more public because, um, I don't know. That's my question. So like, is it because yeah. of our like human nature to be social people or is there like something else that's maybe in the Bible or like the way that we like conventionally do religion that makes it more of a public experience? Okay. It's a great question. So first of all, just a clarification. I did not say it's not personal or not individual. It is totally personal and totally individual, but it's not just personal and individual. It's also collective. So my point is, um with like okay and then to answer your question why which is i mean you asked the perfect question there i i just you know i think if i answer what with aquinas it'll make something somewhat clear um you touched on it first of all as aristotle notes he aquinas says we are political animals so just take an analogy from marriage you could say well you know people get married just for the purpose of their personal fulfillment well it's not so simple is it because if they have children then the destiny of those children is related to how they do in marriage. And then if they try to educate those children, they're gonna depend on the community. So they're gonna send them to schools. The children can grow up to contribute to the community. So they have a political impact. Every nation state needs citizens to survive um, or else has to you know, import people, but that's a different kind of dependency. Um, and then you've got like all the ways that the husband or wife working or connected to other people to support their family. So when you start to work on it all, uh, it becomes very political. Um, and if you destabilize a family, you don't just affect one person, you affect, you know, many people. Okay, so there's a political element there. Well, religion's similar in the sense that like, um, corp so the second reason Aquinas gives is that we're not just political animals, we're also embodied persons. So 
if I go to worship God and I just think about it, but I don't kneel or I don't use gestures in my body, it's okay, but it might be more concrete if I engage my whole physical self. Like I, that's why people kneel or, you know, Muslims put their head to the ground. Catholics have all kinds of ritual about how they pray with their bodies and famous saints, you know, pray in their bodies in lots of different ways. It's because you're putting your whole self into it. Like the self is the soul and the body. But when you worship with your body, you often are helped if there's external symbols or serene Gregorian chant or a beautiful liturgy. That's one of the reasons Aquinas says we have sacraments. We need external signs of grace to communicate grace so that we as collective political animals can orchestrate our life toward God publicly. So think about how hard it is sometimes to pray on your own, but it's easier to pray at mass or in a religious service where other people are speaking the word of God, praying with you, uh, someone's expositing the truth of the Catholic faith, you know, and so forth. So animality is, and it makes us interdependent, and then we also need a kind of politics. And that can actually lead back to personal relationship with God. You know, like if I go on a retreat at a monastery, and the, the, the friars or the nuns are all praying, that could help me intensify my own personal discipline to grow closer to God in individual personal prayer. Okay, so that's the kind of idea I'm talking about. But that means you have to have public space for real religion. I mean, so the, the ancient peoples are the opposite. Everything is so public and so political that there's no room for dissent. So in the Roman Empire, if you wouldn't worship the Roman gods and sacrifice the emperor, they killed you. Like there's no personal space. It's all the public religion. And you better find your relationship with the divine through our political system. And Christianity cut through that. So, you know, you can go maximal, too maximal on the political oppression, like public side, but you can also retreat too much into individualism. Okay, thank you. That makes sense. I have another question following off of that. Um, do you think that the human nature to be a political animal is the reason why a lot of times we tend to go towards like religious superstition or sin, or is that more a result of the community that is caused because of that human nature? Um, well, you, I mean, you do have, that's a, that's a great question. That's a, that's a highly, that's a highly complex theological topic because, okay, so some people said, Pelagius, for example, famously said in the fifth century, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with us as individuals. We learn bad behavior from the external society. And in the enlightenment, you have people like Rousseau who tend to kind of rehabilitate these Pelagian themes. This is condemned by Augustine and by the Catholic Church, there's stuff wrong in each of us individually. There are bad inclinations, counter-inclinations to the good. Now you have a range of views among theologians as to how bad it is or, you know, to what extent, you know, the Council of Trent talks about us being wounded, not radically depraved. Luther and Calvin talk about us being radically depraved. But even among Catholic theologians, there's a difference of degree of argument about how, to what degree are we wounded, how depraved are we, or how functional are we in the natural world and then you've got the way that us as depraved people leave a legacy of a depraved culture over to others so some things work pretty well even though we're a wounded people and other things uh you know we, we create what john paul ii calls social structures of sin and so like the collective idolatry of the ancient egyptians is what it's what we call social structure which is reinforcing a bad tendency so um, aquinas says you no. Know, it's a famous phrase, it's, you know, if you're brought up in some countries in medieval Europe, you're taught that stealing from other people is okay. 
And uh, that's, and then you grow up with that and then you, you inculcate the bad habit. So the social structures of grace, like the church and her culture, if it's functional, where it's healthy, and then social structures of sin, they work, they, they can affect and reinforce either our good inclinations under grace or our bad inclinations under sin. But we, our nature remains somewhat good if wounded. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. That's, that's all. Okay. So my question sort of related to, uh, you characterized the law in the Old Testament as sort of being a pedagogue to um, guide individuals at the time into sort of the virtuous life, if I understood correctly. That was sort of the deeper purpose. Um, I was kind of That's wondering. Claim, yeah. Sorry, what's that? That is what Thomas Aquinas argues. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I was kind of wondering, um, obviously there's a lot of discussion in the New Testament, uh, Galatians in particular comes to mind about sort of the passing away of that pedagogue with the coming of Christ. Now, of course, yeah. we're still called to the virtuous life with the coming of Christ. So I was just kind of wondering how you would interpret like the passing away of that pedagogue, um, what sort of, at one level, what sort of replaces it? Because we're still called to the virtuous life. And in one sense, that sort of comes through that relationship with Christ through, et cetera. But um, I was just kind of wondering if you had any remarks on that. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's another classic question. You guys are asking great major theological questions, which I'm, I rejoice at. So it's true that Paul talks about law passing away. And then you have to figure out what, what he's talking about. Um, and that's itself a complex thing. I'm not going to go into Paul interpretation, but I mean, I, I'm very interested in that and work on it a little bit. But I'll just go to the classic Christian answer to your question, okay? Uh, it's in Aquinas, it's in Augustine, it's in Justin Martyr, it's in Irenaeus of Lyon. They basically make a threefold distinction in the law. There's the moral law that's applicable always and everywhere, and they say Christ doesn't just keep it, he intensifies it, as you see in the Sermon on the Mount on the mountain and he gives you the grace to keep to begin to keep it so as where the old law was given to you but didn't the ceremonies the old law don't give grace to keep the law the new testament gives you sacramental grace to keep the law and intensifies it this is regarded the moral law then you have the juridical laws i referred to and aquinas says they're conventional i mean god revealed the god inspired moses or the mosaic authors etc to write these laws for people in the era in which they lived to consecrate Israel to God, we don't need to, nor should we necessarily use them today because they were punishments or rewards, ways to coordinate society relative to that age in the covenant. Today, we would have our own Christian jurisdictions. So we might punish stealing in Texas in a Christian way, it's ideally hope, but it would be different than we did in, uh, in ancient Israel. He says, you know, they're nothing, there's nothing, they're not intrinsically raw. They're not intrinsically evil. They're just limited. The third kind of law, he says, is the ceremonial law of all the rites and rituals of sacrifice and of all the performances of belonging to the covenant. And there, Aquinas says, those are all abrogated by the coming of Christ because they all symbolize the one saving sacrifice that's now taken place. And he says, they did not communicate grace. They symbolize the grace of Christ. Now, he says that grace was already being given by anticipation in the faith of the Israelites. So if they practice those ceremonies with faith, 
They didn't receive grace from them. So like say, sacrificing the Paschal lamb, not a grace, and it doesn't give you grace itself, but if you did it out of faith in the covenant, you're saved by faith and hope and charity. It's a little bit like what Baptists today believe about the New Testament sacrifices. And it's not an accident because the Baptist theory of the sacraments actually comes from medieval Catholic theories like Aquinas' about the Old Covenant. What, what the medievals thought about the Old Testament sacrifices, Baptists and Zwinglians took to also be true of the New Testament. But Aquinas thinks that's true only of the Old Testament. Well, when the New Testament sacraments were instituted, now we have instituted sacraments that can effectuate what they symbolize. So they actually communicate the grace they symbolize and allow you to observe the moral law, but abrogate the Old Testament ceremonies. So now we don't circumcise. We're not inducted into the covenant by the rituals of the Old Testament Judaism. We don't sacrifice animals in the temple. That's all done. But we do try to keep the moral law even more intensively moved by the grace of Christ communicated to us through the saving sacraments of the new covenant. So in summary, would it be kind of fair to say basically that the virtuous life to which we're called, that standard is unchanged in the New Testament, but now we have a means of actually seeking to live in that direction through the grace of Christ, whereas that isn't something that existed in the same way or nearly as effectively in the uh, Old Testament. Would that be kind of a fair? Yeah, just a new, yeah, a nuance. I mean, Aquinas knows that he says the old, he says there was grace given to them in the old covenant for the sake in view of Christ's merits and they could be saved and even become saints. And he says it was the sufficient grace to become holy, but they didn't get it because of their works of observance of the law. And they learned under the observance of the law of their own limits, but they could learn God's mercy and the inner freedom of belief in God by faith. And he says then that way the old co- the new covenant was hidden in the old covenant and Christ is hidden in the old Testament, but there were people who were sanctified and saved by grace maybe many of them, maybe the majority, but they, the dynamic is one of learning your weakness, growing and discovering mercy, uh, finding grace through faith and hope and charity, and being secretly conformed to the coming mystery of Christ. Okay, thank you. Great. Hi, uh, we get a lot from non-Christians or atheists is that God seems to condone slavery in the Old Testament. Yeah. And I think about, you know, the greatest thing God did for the Israelites was freeing them from slavery so um, if, it's a, if it's such a negative thing, how do you reconcile that? And is it an example of, um, you know, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth of like showing uh, more mercy in the way God talks about slavery? Yeah. Okay. Another great question and a hard one. So I would say, um, so look, there are different approaches to the heart, the kind of harsher moral teachings of the Old Testament. And First of all, I'll tell you is because the next question is about the, the, the sort of hard, most difficult passage, which I'm happy someone has felt. Um, I take the view, that, what I want to first make clear is there are different ways you can go on this, and I take a, a particular line, but it's not like the, the teaching of the Catholic Church. But it is a, it's a common view. It's a view Aquinas takes, which is that the things that God does or in some way expressly permits in the Old Testament morally are morally defensible, but they can be very imperfect. So like, um, if God has the death penalty for idolatry in the Old Testament, I would defend that that's not technically wrong or evil. It's just inapplicable. I think is what Jesus shows, for example, in the stoning of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 
He doesn't say it's wrong to stone her for adultery. He says, he basically says, if you start to see what it implies, it implies that we're all sinners, you're all sinners, and that no one who's righteous can throw the first stone. So I, I think that the um, punishments are sometimes inapplicable, but they are um, defensible. I, I say that in a general way. Now, about slavery, I think the story is very complicated. First of all, you have to get right what ancient slavery it is, and it wasn't anything like we have. It's not, you can't defend it as some, you know, at something like modern capitalism because slaves were not treated equally, but it wasn't modern chattel slavery either. Um, it, the way the Old Testament treats slavery is to definitely defend the, the certain human rights of the slave. We would find it very unsatisfying, but in its context, it's a move forward. You say, well, why didn't they, if it's an inspired document, why don't they just abolish slavery? Yeah, I mean, one answer could be that would have been unthinkable at the time. It would be like telling people today to abolish um, nuclear weapons. I mean, nuclear weapons are, that's clearly, you can't use nuclear weapons. It's intrinsically evil. You can't kill mass civilian populations like that. But if you just, if God gave a law and told us to, you know, abandon all nuclear weapons, the church does say it, but it, it's not necessarily going to be effective. So that's one strategy. Another strategy is to say, yeah, I mean, certain forms of slavery are, in the ancient world, are perhaps not intrinsically evil, but they're just really lesser forms of morality. And that's where they were. So it's not that God can uh, tolerate something intrinsically evil. He tolerated something that was morally very, you know, minimally passable, defensible at the limit, and then he, he caused it, uh, it to evolve. But there's no question, historically, the Old Testament's really hard on mistreatment of slaves, starting with Exodus, and that became the meta-narrative of the West, the freedom of people from slavery. It became the meta-narrative of the West. It took over the Greek and Roman world. The, the slaves were freed. Baptism meant they were treated differently. Paul talks about, in his letter to Onesius, um, is it letter to Onesius or letter about Onesius, the slave? One of his shortest letters, Paul talks about slavery and talks about treating the other as a brother in Christ, baptized in Christ. So the Christological way of looking at the other as a slave, and Paul talking about Jesus as a slave in Philippians 2, who made himself a slave for us to serve us so we could be liberated. I mean, God became a slave. You know, all of that is radically relativizing the ancient world. So, I mean, you can tell the story in different ways about how bad it was, whether it was absolutely intolerable, intrinsically evil, but God just, as it were, tried to slowly change it or did slowly change it, or whether it was kind of at the limit of permissibility, but he, he changed, in any case, it was bad. It was pretty bad one way or the other, whether it was intrinsically evil or whether it was just, you know, morally minimally tolerable uh, is a technical question in a certain way, because at the end of the day, God gave us the uh, fullness of revelation time to help us abolish slavery. That's the way I'd answer that. Let me take the question. You guys have a lot of questions now. This is good. Let me take Darren's question. How would you interpret Deuteronomy 7, where the Lord tells the Israelites to put the ban on the other tribes? That means, by the way, wiping them out. Okay, it's mass extermination or mass killing. It's, you might say collective death penalty. Uh, or collective death penalty in the context of, of war, or you know, arguably religious war as just war self-defense, but also where the entire civic population is, uh, is put to death. In this case, God isn't the one killing, as with the firstborns, but commanding people to kill. Um, how does that square with the natural law? Great question. 
so it's the hardest case in the Bible. It's the famous thing. And there are people, there's a guy who's written a, a book recently from Catholic University of America Press. He's a young theologian on dark passages in the Old Testament. And he takes a different view on this where he sort of says, well, God took up inspiration in a context where they had a, you know, a, a harsher, more brutal and coarser form of life. And he gradually inspired them. And we don't have to believe that's an inspired passage. I'm not really inclined to go that direction. I take the view of Aquinas, which is on this. Um, under natural law, you're quite right. We cannot, uh, uh, you cannot kill the innocent or the non-combatants. You cannot practice, uh, you, even, if it's a, even if it's a legitimate just war of religious self-defense, and there is that in the Old Testament, and even if the other person tribe is guilty of grave and, and horrific idolatry, which is often the case when you study like the Amalekites or the, uh, the ancient tribes in question, some of it is, is not, you know, not commendable action on their part. But even if God's judging them, the weird thing is deputizing the Israelites to manifest the judgment of God. Now, I take a view which Aquinas, I think, holds, and which is also some medievals defend, which is that's not in accord with the natural law, but God can suspend the applications of the natural law in order to directly convoke his judgment, his transcendent justice and judgment in a particular context. Another great example of this would be uh, Abraham being, uh, being told directly by God to sacrifice Isaac. Because, I mean, after all, it's not God sacrificing Isaac or killing Isaac. It's God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. And you could say, well, does God have the right to do that? And I think the medieval say, yeah, technically he does have the right to do that to Abraham, but it's really harsh because it's totally transcending ordinary nature and the natural law. And he, can only, he only does that within the parameters of a very a strict logic. And one of, the, one of those, I think there are two parameters there. One is he's in a very particular case manifesting his judgment on the human race. So in Abraham's case, telling him to sacrifice Isaac, of course he didn't in the end, but still God did it, tell him to do it. Telling him to do it as a trial is a way of utterly purifying the founder of the covenant's heart so it belongs exclusively to God. And he realizes even his only son is promised to God alone, the God who will give his only son, interestingly. But the point is, it's a purification of the heart by supernatural grace of Abraham. And similarly, I think with the judgment on the Amalekites and putting the ban, you have a kind of radical revelation of God's justice with regards to idolatry, where he deputizes the chosen people to manifest the judgment. Now, you don't have to take this interpretation. and You can say that's just too harsh. But I think God can do that discreetly. But here's the catch. That's only within a very limited context in the Old Testament. That has now been, you know, uh, swept up in subsequent prophecy and the fulfillment of the old covenant by the new. And so it could never, ever be done in the new covenant by anyone, right? So you cannot universalize as a precept of natural law precisely because it's these particular cases. So if someone comes to you in spiritual direction, you're a priest and they say, I think God's also telling me to kill my son like he told Abraham to kill his son. You refer them to a psychiatrist and you call maybe public police, even though I could defend Abraham being called to do it. I'm going to do it that way. Instead of saying that there's something just totally primitive about Abraham I can't understand, and 
this guy who's or this guy who wants to kill his son like abraham killed his son that's defensible no it's not defensible god that's not happening after the death of christ on the other hand i do think something mysterious is happening in abraham now as i say there are other interpretive strategies you can find my email online if you email me i can give you other books and people argue differently if you don't like that answer i find it the most satisfying but I do think it's a hard teaching of the Bible. I do think it's also kind of meaningful. Like Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is kind of meaningful and beautiful. Um, Mauricio, what do you mean by God suspending the natural law? As I understand it, it's, yeah. Well, it's not, yeah, natural law is in accordance and is a manifestation of his eternal law, right? So Mauricio asks, how can he suspend the natural law if it's a manifestation of the eternal law? Absolutely right, Mauricio. It's an expression of the eternal law. We want to go normally by nature and nature's wisdom, but there are ways in the supernatural life that God does ask us sometimes to do things that are not within the mean or the norm of ordinary natural law. So, for example, uh, Aquinas says the person who accepts a calling to be a celibate monk or a consecrated virgin or in a religious life is not acting in the normal mean or measure of chastity because the normal way to be chaste is to be married and have children. But God can call you to imitate Christ and the Virgin Mary in a particular way that's above the norm of the natural law. It's not contrary to nature, but it transcends the ordinary natural law. That's different from like killing an innocent person, which is directly contrary to natural law. But what Aquinas also says is God can sometimes in punishments uh, or in trials ask people to do things that transcend the natural law without going directly against it. The reason killing Isaac, if Abraham had killed Isaac, at God's command, I mean, been harsh. But if it wouldn't, if God is the author of life and death, He can reclaim human life for Himself. Now, a way that this can happen is in, say, just war, where I mean, you say God permitted; He didn't, you know, He doesn't want World War II for sure. He just permitted the evil, the evils that led to World War II. But then, when you have to get involved by providence in World War II, and you know, in a just war, a person kills another person. I mean, God is actually employing the state to depute an army for a just war so that one person takes another person's life. And that does happen under the banner of natural law. That's under natural law. If the soldier just does it by vendetta, he's angry at the German after he captures him. The American soldier kills the German soldier by, you know, that happens all the time, happened all the time, alas. That's vendetta, and that's absolutely immoral. But if he does it, in a combat situation, as deputized by the state, he acts morally according to natural law, and he does participate in the eternal law. And, you know, that's why you can bless soldiers going into battle, whether they're going to kill or be killed, because they are going to depute themselves in accord with the eternal law under the natural law. Well, you can have something like that in the order of the divine revealed law, where the Israelites are manifesting the covenant. And that happens with the, the calling of Abraham and so forth.